Hello, everybody. Um, I hope you've enjoyed all this chit chat anyway. Um, so happy new year to all. And we're starting ours at the Poison Pen by speaking once again to Carol Johnstone, who last year we uh, talked to her about Mirrorland, her debut crime novel. And this year we're going to talk about the Black House. So when's hog money? You're in Scotland, so I should know this. It was the 31st, so New Year's oh. Eve. Okay, and so hog money is a New New Year's Eve celebration, is nothing to do with Christmas. No, it's not, no. I mean, it, traditionally in Scotland, New Year is a much bigger deal than Christmas. Oh. Um, so in Scotland, we, we get the first and the second office holidays. Um, you don't anywhere else in the UK. Um, and you're supposed to, Hogmanay is when you kind of, you, you stay in your house and you have a few whiskies and then when the bells come, you either go out to other people's houses or the first foot, they come to, to your house. Um, and then on New Year's Day, traditionally, you have a huge big kind of party in someone's house and everybody, everybody turns up. So that's why you need the second off to, to recover. <laughs> to recover. So was Old Lang Syne really written for Hogmanay then? I don't actually know. I have no idea whether whether Robert Burns wrote it specifically for for Hogmanay or not. Um, I ass always assumed yes. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, Boxing Day is a British thing, but not a Scottish thing, right? The day after Christmas. Yeah. I mean, we do get that off as well. But yeah, I think it's um, it's more of an of an English thing traditionally, originally. But yeah, yeah, we get sort of two public holidays at Christmas and then in Scotland, you get two public holidays at New Year as well. Okay, well, this year we happen to get them in the US because Christmas and New Year's were on a Sunday, but that's not, yeah. although, <laughs> although now there's like Christmas Monday or Christmas Tuesday. Actually, we even have Easter Monday, which I think is really stretching it, but what do I know? <laughs> anyway, um, but you, if I remember right in your book, well, there are many things that are going on in the Outer Hebrides. Um, it's not actually the holidays, right? No, <laughs> it's not. Um, it's probably, do you want me just to, to do a summary of the book? Sure, that would be, would be absolutely great. Why don't we do that? It'll make more sense what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So the, so the Black House is it's a, it's a gothic thriller. And it's also a kind of unusual murder mystery. Um, it's set on a fictional island off the west coast of the Isle of Lewis in the Scottish Outer Hebrides. And it's actually two stories told sort of side by side from the point of view of two different characters. And the first main story um, follows a very troubled woman called Maggie Mackay who as a child in 1999 claimed that someone on the island murdered a young local man called Robert Reed. And then she returns to the, to the island as an adult and she has very strange motives for, for wanting to find out what actually did happen to Robert and for needing to prove that he was in fact murdered. And her return kind of unsettles the, the islanders, you know, they, it threatens to expose a lot of secrets that some islanders would prefer remained hidden. And so very quickly, Maggie's kind of forced to consider just how much she's willing to risk to uncover the truth. And then the second story follows Robert um, and the last kind of six or so months of his life up until his untimely um, and disturbing death so that the reader finds out what actually did happen to Robert at the same time that Maggie does. And Robert, Robert has a disturbing story of his own. Um, and so as I, as I understand it, to, to impart for the reader to embrace what, what totally happens, you are writing about bipolar disease. Is that right? Yeah. So Maggie has bipolar one disorder, um, which is kind of characterized by having very kind of manic high periods, followed by very low depressive episodes that can last sometimes for months and months and she's kind of suffered from this since she was a teenager she has a very <clears throat> her mum dies at the, I think about three months before the beginning of the novel but she's always had a very complicated relationship with her mother um, she believes her mother also is bipolar um, but her mother never believed that she was, um, and she also believed that she was psychic, that she could see things, that she had visions. Um, and so they've always had this very difficult relationship. And 
I can't sort of go into exactly how they both no. end up, <laughs> but it is it is a very integral part of the of the plot that Maggie has struggled all her life really to accept herself, but she's also really struggled to accept her mum. Um, and her returning to the island is partly because her mother has died and she needs to find some answers, but also because she really is struggling to live with herself and to cope with her own life. Um, and so that's really why she kind of ends up on the island. I was a bit, I wouldn't say hesitant, I was a bit nervous to write about bipolar. I mean, I don't have it. Um, I don't personally know anybody um, who's had it or who suffers from it. So I had to do a lot of research on it. And again, I think a lot of the time mental health or health conditions are used as a kind of vehicle in thrillers quite often, you know, just to, to kind of, oh, she's an unreliable narrator, she's nuts. And that's a really, I really wanted to avoid that. I really didn't want that to be the whole point of Maggie. Um, so I did do an awful lot of research and it's just kind of part of her character, part of her motivation, but it isn't everything, you know. So I, I wanted it to be important because I think, especially these days, the way that mental health is dealt with in society um, is often kind of fraught with difficulty. People are often very misunderstood. Um, and I wanted to write about it for that reason as well, just to kind of have a character who's going through all of this other thing and just so happens to also be bipolar. Well, no, I understand that. And we'll get to gothic thriller in a moment because, um, you know, mental instability is almost always part of gothic. There always has to be somebody who is um, struggling mentally and emotionally or you can't get off into gothic territory. But mm -hmm. um you know, I, I was very struck by how difficult it must have been to have Maggie's mother as your parent. She's a single parent um, and unreliable. Um, you know, her Maggie has an unreliable narrator as a mother. Um, and so much in her life would not make much sense. Um, and I found it interesting that the mother is you know, totally rejects the idea that there's any um, anything wrong with her, so to speak, you know, that and she does channel whatever bipolarity she's suffering from into ideas of being special, you know, being psychic, being whatever. And yet I find that interesting because her life is basically a shambles. So, you know, if she's if she is special, if she's convinced herself that she's special, how does she account for the fact that, you know, her life is like a runaway train? Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's it's hard for, I mean, I was, I, you know, it's hard to to decide whether Maggie is actually bipolar herself or is she just so traumatized by her mother, who was not actively mean or anything. I mean, this isn't a Munchausen's case or anything awful like that. That you know, it's hard for her to have any real perception or understanding of reality because she wasn't brought up with any. And, you know, yeah. I think we leave some of this pretty open-ended for the reader to decide, um, you know, how, it's, how, how it all is. I mean, you have to, in every, in every novel, you have to suspend disbelief. And this one, you may have to spend, suspend disbelief more than you, more than you. <laughs> um, but I think it's important to understand that, you know, Maggie herself, um, you know, struggles with disbelief or confusion and all from her parents. So... Um, what do you understand the word gothic to mean? I, I, you know, we've all been grappling with that because I said two or three years ago that the gothic was the, was the next big new thing. And mm. increasingly I am seeing what are called gothic thrillers. And to some degree, I wonder if this has grown out of the unreliable narrator shock thriller, you know, all the way back to Gone Girl in order to, it's kind of like the media where you have to have yeah. more shock in order to get more clicks. Um, yeah. If you stand out in a fairly crowded field, um, you know, what does Gothic allow? What does that provide? Why are you drawn to it? Do you know, it's weird because I, I never really questioned the kind of books that I read growing up and when I was in my 20s and 30s as being Gothic, but a lot of them, to my mind, were. But I think Gothic, I mean, it is like you exactly what you're saying. 
it's a marketing tool by and large because I think Gothic is a huge broad church. I think that it that it yes, it covers kind of very classic Gothic stories that everybody knows, like Rebecca and uh, the Haunting of Hill House and Jane Eyre and all those kind of stories. But it also covers modern Gothic, like something like Gone Girl or The Dry. I think to me, the thing that I, well, I think that Gothic has a sort of, it, it needs a certain number of things. I think the first one is atmosphere. There's always a big atmosphere in, in a Gothic story. It, it's usually quite dark, it's usually quite beautiful, it's, it's like a kind of vibe, it's very difficult to explain. And a lot of that is driven by the second thing, which I think is setting. I think setting is hugely important to a gothic story, whether it's a kind of haunted house or, or, a, or an island in the middle of nowhere or, or you know anything at all really, as long as, to me, the stories that I've written could only have been written in the places that they are set. You know, it's almost like the setting is is another character. I know it's a bit cliched, but I, I think that that's what it is for me. When I write something, it's usually the setting that comes first. And then the third thing is usually some kind of sort of aspect of love and passion. But again, it's usually quite dark. It's usually betrayal and adultery and love triangles and all that kind of good stuff you know it's always quite sort of emotional there's a lot of passion in a gothic story there's an unreliable narrator like you said and then the fifth thing is always just that there is this big kind of mystery there's this secret that's kind of underpinning everything that's got to be revealed or exposed at, at some point or perhaps there are numerous secrets that that need to be kind of revealed along the way so really, I think there's not much difference between something that's called a gothic thriller and something that would be called a psychological thriller, um, you know, a whodunit, a murder mystery. They're all kind of variations on the same thing. To me, a gothic story is something that you feel as much as you read. You know, I want somebody to read one of my stories and feel like they've been to this place or feel like they're in this place or that they've met these people um so I I don't to me I think it's quite hard to describe what gothic is because it like you said they just they lump everybody in <laughs> it's very difficult to tell um if something is gothic or if people are just saying it's gothic but to me those are the ingredients that that, that would make a gothic story and they are the kind of stories that I love to read well, I think that was a very lucid explanation. I mean, they go all the way back to, you know, Monk Lewis, um, who was a favorite. If you read, I don't think Jane Austen cited him, but George Ed Hare, who writes wonderful regencies, is always citing Monk Lewis. And you have The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins is another. I think there's always a slight tinge of the supernatural or the word gothic kind of braces the reader to know that it's not so much human malevolence, which is what mm. you know powers a psychological thriller, um, but but that's always that's always human. It's jealousy, it's rage, it's you know greed, it's whatever it all is. There's always, I think, when you say the word gothic, it, it there's a an atmosphere, you know. And you're you're yeah. totally right. Um, and and you do it in a double way because not only do we have this remote island, um, I've been as far as Skye, but I have not gone you know, out, out further into the Atlantic. So you have an island where basically there's nothing between the edge of the island and North America, except mm -hmm. the Atlantic. So it's very isolated. But then you also call it the Black House. And what does that mean? You know, the Black House is a term I've run in before. What does it mean? And, you know, it, it's, it's not a, unusual for a Scottish uh, novel to talk about a Black House. No, so the, the Black House, they tend to really only exist in the highlands and islands they're the kind of traditional crofting house mm. um they're very small they're usually um very i think they have maybe two or three feet thick stone walls incredibly thick stone walls with tiny little mean windows to kind of keep the atlantic storms out they're usually thatched um and quite often they have great big rocks kind of weighing the the thatch down which you don't really see a lot of in england so sort of yeah makes it look a bit different years ago centuries ago it all used to be just one room so you would live in one end and all your livestock would live in the other end and then there would be like a central hearth 
and there would be no chimney. So the, the, the smoke would just kind of go up through the, the thatched roof and that's why they got their name. The actual black houses are usually white um, on the outside, but they're black on the inside because of all the, the soot. Yeah. The soot. You don't see them anymore, really. I mean, I the black house in, in the novel is actually based on a house that I've stayed in quite a few times on the Isle of Harris, mm -hmm. um, but it's a replica. Usually the, the houses that you see these days are, are replicas built for tourists, so they're all a lot more pleasant inside <laughs> than the original sure ones. And, you know, the truth <laughs> is the lack of a chimney meant that people... Um, I read it. I had an author who... Um, wrote a book, and I'm trying to remember, it was an author I edited, whether it was in Alaska or what, but anyway, um, the lack of ventilation from the fire meant that people often suffered from lung, lung disease of one sort or another, and once the chimney came into play, you know, it was a much healthier, so I'm sure that any replica house would be forced to have, you know, not just let the smoke rise up, so yeah. to <laughs> no. I, I've been in cottages in Ireland where no matter how the peat, the smell of peat, mm. you just can't get rid of it. You know, once it's burned inside, it soaks into the walls. Um, yeah. What were the Scots burning? Were they also burning peat? Yeah. Oh, a lot of wood, in, you know, on those islands. No, and they still do it now. So usually each family um, will, or each generation of a family will have a certain amount of peat that is their own peat. So they farm it every year. Um, and then they use it over the winter, they dry it during the, the spring and summer, and then in the winter they, they, they burn it. But peat, um, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's, it smells a lot, but it's also really smoky. And it doesn't, I mean, it is, it, it's not like coal or wood, you know, you don't get this instant heat. It's kind of this, this, this slow um, heat that, that, that you feel warm, but you never feel particularly hot. So I don't think it's very fuel efficient. Um, way of heating your house but that's all all people had for for years and years I mean on on the outer Hebrides certainly there are hardly any trees because they chopped them all down years ago I think they're starting to to try and grow some more so in the very center of of Lewis and Harris there is there is this this forest but it's bizarre you know because you'll be driving along and then all of a sudden there are all these trees and you're so used to seeing none you know there are just no trees anywhere um, so yeah, they had no option. They had to 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 dig up the peat um, and use that as heating, or else they would have had nothing. I've always wondered who her first thought that you could dig up grass, so to speak. I don't know. And burn it, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's not obvious that that would no. be the way to go. And you know, I've been I've been in Iceland, and I remember they took us to tour an Icelandic forest, and you know, the trees are about I'm five feet tall, a little over. And the trees were about my size. <laughs> um, because, you know, they just don't grow any larger up there. So in these new forest plantations that they're attempting to establish, in the, are, are the trees going to be significantly bigger? They, I don't know. I mean, they've only started. I don't think they've been doing it for that many years. Um, and we've never been in it. We've only ever kind of seen it from a distance. I don't know what size they are. But, but yeah, I, I mean... There is a certain microclimate in, in the Outer Hebrides. It's quite warm. It's significantly warmer than mainland Scotland, for example. Um, so you would expect that you would be able to grow certain kinds of trees if you really tried. I mean, I've I've seen a few houses in the Hebrides that have grown palm trees, for, for example. Oh, it's the gospel. It is, it is. I mean, it's so stormy there. Yeah. Terrible Atlantic storms all the time. But actually, in terms of temperature, it's quite mild and you very rarely get snow or, or anything like that there either i got it well no that makes perfectly good sense because the gulf stream it turns mm. it's yes. so it probably washes i mean i've certainly seen palm trees in cornwall you know mm. because it goes snaking up that way so i guess that makes perfectly good. although with all the weird climate change going on it's almost impossible we have had more rain in phoenix since august than seattle I mean, if wow. you I know it's raining wow. right now. It was pouring rain uh, Sunday. And, you know, it's just this weird. Um, and it is. Now talking about atmospheric rivers, which um, have drowned Northern California and so forth. So as, as everything's moving farther north with climate change, it'll be interesting to see what happens to the, to the islands and to Iceland and the Faroes yeah. and, you know, all of Lapland.
and mm. all of that. So I know Harris, we always think, or I anyway, immediately think of Harris Tweed, but um, on your um, imaginary island, what would be the, you know, how did people make a living? Why, why is that community there? And what is it they're doing when she arrives? Well, um, it's, it's kind of one of these places, the Isle of Lewis and Harris, it's so confusing because it's, it's one island, it's one body of land. But the bottom third, the southern third is Harris, and the northern two thirds is Lewis. Um, and traditionally, all of these islands were farming, crofting communities who also fished. So they would always go out, fishing would be their main kind of income, but they would all have these, these crofts, they would always have a little bit of land that they would essentially farm for themselves so grow crops for their for their animals um grow grow fodder for their animals and crops for themselves but they wouldn't that wouldn't be their kind of their main income their main income would always be fishing and then obviously there were the highland clearances um where all the the english and southern scottish landowners basically um decided that sheep would make more money than than people because all these crofters and fishermen they rented their land they rented their homes they didn't own anything and so there was this great big clearance of people particularly in the highlands and islands um, and they were just told to go you know they had no rights no anything at all there are cairns all over the outer hebrides to these kind of they, they sort of stood up they rose up they had riots but at the end of the day they had no real rights and they were all kind of ousted for for sheep and most of the people who lived there ended up moving to mainland scotland and trying to get involved in the sort of industrialization of scotland then um, the majority of them went to canada and america um, they just got steamships and over to 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 um, america and canada and, and never came back and so I think that's why the Hebrides in particular, because like you said, they are so isolated. They are, I think they're something like 40, 50 miles out from, from the mainland. They never really recovered. And to this day, they're really underpopulated. There, there's, I mean, for years, when, when I stayed there in 2017 and they didn't have any 3G or 4G or mobile signal or anything, they, they, they really kind of stayed almost stuck in time in a lot of ways. It's, they've changed a lot in the last few years. But so most of the people I would say that live there now um, live there, they, it's to do with the tourists. Um, there's a lot of campsites, there are a lot of um, holiday homes, a lot of holiday lets like there is on Sky. Um, and in the book, the majority of the people there they either work in you know the shop or the pub the local shop or the pub um they either run b&bs or they run um, guest houses and they're really the existence is a very simple existence but it's very reliant um, on other people there are still fishing there is still crofting um but it's kind of almost secondary to the things that people have to do in order to, to make a living over there. Well, fishing was on its way out anyway. I mean, because the North Atlantic is so overfished that, yes. um, you know, that that wasn't going to be in Alaska here, um, mm. you know, on our on our Pacific Northwest. Fishing is was so overdone that, um, you know, I don't know whether lots of those um, piscine populations how's that for a great phrase whether <laughs> whether they're ever going to recover um but it does mean that people um and also you know refrigeration and freezing made a huge difference i mean i've crossed the north atlantic way up a couple of times and you can go to museums and see um what it was like in the 18th and 19th century and earlier when people lived off fishing and basically they had to salt everything down if they wanted to yeah. preserve it or people had to eat it fresh but once you got to real refrigeration um and now flash freezing um it makes a big difference too as to mm. as to the fishing industry and it becomes more industrial in size yeah. and it's harder for smaller so and what about the weaving i mean is that still still going on yeah absolutely again mainly for for tourism right. there there are a lot of um there are a lot of shops 
there are a lot of shops that you can go into, particularly when you walk off the ferry. There's a whole kind of yeah. plethora of them there, there next to the terminal. And you can go in and you can watch the, the Harris Tweed being being made and you can you can buy and you can buy pretty much anything. You can buy handbags, clothes, purses, sure. you know, everything. Um, and they also recently have become quite famous for gin. So Harris um, has its own gin distillery, quite a big one actually. Um, and they, it's really nice. They make it from from seaweed. It's so it's so lovely. Um, oh, so that's sure. quite a big thing. I thought you were going to tell me they've started a juniper berry. No. <laughs> so it's from seaweed. How absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll have to tell my husband, who's very proud of his Harris Tweed jacket, which he has had for like 60 years and, you know, apparently <laughs> will never wear out. So it's really marvelous stuff. But anyway, when Maggie arrives here on this legendary island, um, Kilmeray, um, she's actually staying in a in a B and B. The black house that she's mm. staying is um, is a rental property, and there's a young woman there who um, who is running it, you know, for for income and so forth. So, and as you say, it's really one room because she's got her bed in one part, and she's got her you know kitchen, whatever it is. So it's basically what we would call an open room or a great room. Yeah you know, a single space. So it'd be awkward for more than a couple or a single person, yeah. you know, to actually yeah. rent it and live in yeah. it. You wouldn't want to do it with small kids or something. It would be. Um, no. So what's, what, what, how is Maggie supporting herself? And, you know, she's arriving at the island and what is it she's going to do for income while she's there? Well, because her mom has died, um, she has, income from her mum to sort of live off she's she's in a difficult position because she's left her job she had a sort of breakdown and she's left her job Um, so she really is kind of in no man's land she's just not sure what she wants to do yet but she's so driven to find out what happened to Robert um, for reasons I can't go into but she really needs to find this out before she makes any bigger decisions about her life and she's lying to all the islanders, you know, she's telling them that she's there to, to kind of write a story, but she's not, you know, because she doesn't have a job anymore. So that's not why she's there. She's there because she wants to find out, out the truth. So the whole time she has this cover story that, that really is essentially a lie. And she's lying to everybody about everything. So she's kind of trying to juggle all of this while still trying to find out what's going on. And also still trying to grieve for her mother and also to kind of recover herself, you know, because she's still very, she's still very exhausted by what's happened to her. She's still very kind of polaxed, I suppose, by the way that her life has suddenly taken this huge turn um, that she wasn't expecting. And she hasn't dealt with anything really her whole life. And now she's kind of chosen to try and deal with everything all at once. Yeah, well, I mean, and some of the islanders sense that, you know, that that it is lies um, or that there's something strange going on. And then, of course, there is the <clears throat> stunningly handsome farmer, <laughs> fortunately single, um, you know, there. And we won't go into all that except that he's there. And, you know, one more complication in Maggie's life. I have to say, you know, the, the story is really interesting, but the thing I loved about this book was your absolutely fabulous, gorgeous descriptions of the island. Um, I thought you write about you wrote about the landscape superbly. I mean, I've been to the Highlands and I've been to Skye, so I can kind of see it. I've been to Shetland more than once and I've been to the Faroe Islands. Wow. I've actually been to Harris and you know, but I'm assuming it those they're all sort of the same. Yeah, they're similar. It's I've I've never been to Shetland um at all. Been to Orkney. Uh but yeah sky and the Outer Hebrides are probably pretty close to each other. Um, they're fairly similar. But the Hebrides, or the Outer Hebrides anyway, are quite different from the Inner Hebrides um, in ways that I always find quite difficult to describe. Um, they feel very different. You know, I love going there. I've been going there for years and years, particularly Lewis and Harris. Um, and when we were living there, we were living there out of season, which is a whole other thing again, you know. Um, with the Outer Hebrides, because they're that much further out, 
the, the east coast uh, is very much like sky. It's quite rocky. Um, it's quite lots of peat moors everywhere and single track roads. But that's where the majority of the population lives. That's where the, the, the ferry terminals are, the, the shops, the restaurants, all the sort of tourist. So it's looking um, back uh, at Scotland rather than out, into, exactly. the, out yeah. into the Atlantic, which makes a yeah. lot of sense, really. It does. But the West Coast is incredibly different. And the West Coast is not like Sky. Um, or Shetland or Orkney, it's it's very unique, it's very remote, um, there's not an awful lot there, and it's got these amazing beaches, these beautiful, beautiful beaches that, that do look from a distance like the Caribbean, you know, they have these huge white, deep white sand and this turquoise sea that's often quite warm, you know, depending on the time of year, and that's where we lived, we lived in a uh, a very small settlement called Cliff on the west coast of Lewis for about eight or nine months, something like that. And we sort of went through a lot of the seasons then. I mean, when we when we got there, um, it was the end of the summer. There were a lot, there's kind of four houses. They were all occupied and we were, there's a cliff beach and there was a campsite next to it. And Cliff Beach is famous for its surf. So there were loads and loads of surfers and camper vans and things. And it felt lovely and it was really warm and all the rest of it. And then I think we'd been there maybe one, one and a half months. And we woke up one day and realized that all the camp, campers, camper vans and things had gone. And then a few days after that, we realized that everybody in the houses had also gone. And Cliff is on a headland sort of on its own, which is already on a kind of peninsula. So we were just utterly alone. It was such a strange feeling. I don't think I've ever been completely alone like that in, in my life. And then within a couple of weeks of that, the storms started. And, and they were just, I mean, I've been in storms before. You know, I grew up in Scotland, but this was something else. It was, it was quite scary. And there were no lights anywhere um, except for our house. We got a lot of power cuts, so you were just plunged into complete and utter darkness. At the time, there was no mobile signal, so we really were reliant on each other, and that was it. You know, if anything went wrong, we had to kind of sort it out ourselves. And it was just such a, a weird environment. I mean, I loved it. There were some days when I'd had enough of it, you know, because it, it took the best part of a day for us to restock we would do it once a month, we'd go to Stornoway and we'd get all our fuel and our food and we'd go to the pub and we'd go to a restaurant and we'd think, you know, we're back in civilization. this is great. And then we would drive all the way back to the West Coast again and kind of hunker down for another month. But when you've got nothing else to sort of distract you, um, except for the scenery that, that, that you're in and the whether it's stormy that day, whether you can go out that day or, or you can't, whether you've got power and you can work or you can't. And it's, it's just, it was just wonderful. I mean, I've stayed in quite a lot of places and none of them have affected me the way that, that Lewis and Harris did. And they do feel like a really spiritual place. I mean, there are lots of Norse legends um, and Celtic mythology about, about the Outer Hebrides. And you can really feel it when you're there. It's... It's, it's got a different light from anywhere else. It's just, it's a fascinating place. And when I was there, I was writing Mirrorland and I wasn't remotely finished. And I stopped, I ended up stopping for about a month just to write the plot out for the Black House because I just needed to get it out of my head. You know? <laughs> and I thought I have to write about this place. And so, so I was really desperate to, to start the Black House as my second book. So is, did getting your contract for these two books, is that the reason you went to, you know, were able to go and live there? No, at the time, um, at the time, I'd had a bit of a kind of midlife crisis. We were living in Essex in the southeast of England, oh. and I worked in cancer services. I worked in a hospital. I've been doing that for about 20 plus years, and a lot of things happened to us in a very short period of time, most of them quite bad. And I think that was my moment where I thought, right, I need to do something with my life other than what I'm doing. You know, I'd always written stories ever since I was a kid. Throughout my 20s and 30s, I was selling short stories, um, mainly in America, but also 
um, in Canada, the UK, um, Australia, in China as well, strangely, they have a really, quite a big um, short story market over there. And, but it, I wasn't getting anywhere close to writing a novel. You know, I just, I was exhausted when I came home from work, both kind of emotionally and physically. I just, I was only writing on weekends, um, sometimes when I was on holiday. And I wasn't, I think I was just expecting it to happen to me somehow, you know, by, by osmosis or something. And I wasn't actually doing anything particularly to make it happen. So we decided to take a sabbatical from our jobs, which is something that I'd never, ever done. I mean, I've worked all my life. And um, yeah, we decided to blow all our savings. We moved to Cyprus. Um, we stayed on the Greek part of Cyprus for six months. Oh, and so I moved to Maryland. Oh, it's beautiful. I'd always had this plan this idea of, of writing a novel in a Greek island you know I just, just thought oh I really want to do that um, and Cyprus I'd never been to before and I really it was it was the kind of the most east we could go because we were going in winter and I thought well, it would be nice and warm which it was and we stayed there for six months we spent most of our money and we still had another six months to go before we went back to our jobs and so that's why we ended up in Scotland because it was sure. cheaper. Yeah, that, would, that would make sense. And obviously the cost of living where you were was very low. I have a wonderful story I will tell you about Cyprus. I mean, this is a complete digression, but too bad. Um, <laughs> I was there with a, a group and I had my daughter and my granddaughter with us. We were on a, a small cruise and, um, and a highlight of, of the day leaving the ship was to go to a beautiful Greek theater, as you know, there are wonderful Greek rooms, yeah. um, you know, in Turkey and Antalya, all that, but also on Cyprus. And so there had been a a strange, a strange man, and we're never entirely sure whether it was his mother or who it was, but anyway, he was a very reclusive and kind of awkward um, kind of fellow. And when you're in a small group, you know, on a ship, you kind of get familiar with everybody, but None of us really ever talked to him or had any clear idea, you know, of who he was or what he did or something. So, you know, we go by bus, a small group, and we get to this beautiful, beautiful theater, and it's it's facing out, you know, into the Aegean mm. and whatever, and it's so atmospheric and so gorgeous, and we're standing there, and this this gentleman descends to the stage, and he turns around, and in perfect classical Greek. He starts declaiming, and I realized that I'm trying to remember it was Aeschylus, and just as he was really getting going, and we were all enthralled, this terrible noise arose, and this ghastly group of Russians who were there <laughs> to do some kind of a photo shoot with models and you know oh, they no. burst upon the scene <laughs> and just shattered it, you know. And, and I mean, honestly, we were all just outraged because wow. it had been this briefly magical moment. You yeah. Know, you're standing there in the Greek ruins and these, you know, the, the words are rolling mm. over you. And my husband, who actually had studied classical Greek in college, was the only person who knew you know, what he was saying. And yeah. we all realized that he was some kind of, you know, obscure scholar or something of the sort. Yeah. But I always remembered that because, you know, it was it was such a clash between, mm. you know, this wonderful situation and then this ghastly yeah. kind of a group, you know, that <laughs> brash and loud and, you know, uh, completely oblivious to yeah. everything around. How beautiful. Him. Yeah, it, it, you know, travel does does take you to some interesting moments, doesn't it, in places? It and does. It's so good for us, you know, to yeah. do things differently. So now where are you living, in Glasgow? No, um, when we came back, when we completely ran out of money, we decided we didn't want to go back to England on our, on our job, so we just quit everything. Um, so we ended up moving in with my father-in-law in a place called Port Glasgow, which is, is basically just about as far west from Glasgow as you can go. It's an old shipbuilding um, town. We stayed there for a while while Ian got a job. My husband Ian got a job so that we could make some money again. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't have, even have an agent. So I'd finished Mirrorland. Um, it was 
out in submission to agents. And I really, I think for that first sort of six months, I really started to panic a bit about what I would do <laughs> if I didn't get an agent. Um, but but eventually I did. I think it took about six months. It was a long, long old time. And then after that, I think probably another five months working on the book before um, it luckily went to auction um, in the UK and in the US. But yeah, I think that, that it was probably about a year really from, from, from coming back now to Hebrides to actually getting anywhere close to a book deal. But now I moved, I would say probably for the past five years, we've kind, kind of just been moving around. We haven't, we haven't been living anywhere. And we just finally bought somewhere. So now we're living just outside Glencoe. So oh. we're up in the West, the West Highlands, um, which is very far from where I grew up. I grew up in the Central Belt, where pretty much everybody in Scotland lives, you know, <laughs> right oh, in the middle at the bottom. Right. Yeah. So, so now, and, 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 and I mean, it's just beautiful. We're, the house is a complete tip at the moment. It's, it's a doer-upper. So there's there's a lot that we need to do, but it's it's lovely. I don't know, or I didn't know the Highlands as well as I probably um, have in the last kind of year or so. But yeah, we're kind of in proper outlander territory now. We're about ten miles from Fort William. <laughs> it's beautiful there. I have been to there. I think the Glen, you know, Glencoe is absolutely superb. Oh, it's and, beautiful. Um, you know, every day I expect Diana to tell me she's moving to Scotland. I mean, she commutes at this point. So really interesting. But yeah, it's gorgeous. So, um, you know, I, I think it's great that you found an agent and a publisher who is sympathetic to what it is you want to write. Um, you know, because they're, they're not by the common way, um, in no. the, you know, stories. Um, but um, they've worked hard to promote you and I have. I've been so lucky. I've been really lucky. And um, Scribner in particular, they, they, they've been great. You know, they've really given me, um, just let me do what I want to do, you know, and, and then and then the, some things have changed, yes, but the, the majority of things haven't. The, the stories really have remained um, the same as when I, I was plotting them out even before I started writing them. So I'm really lucky because I know that there are aspects of both Maryland and the Black House that are a bit out there that do require you to suspend your belief. Oh, I think that's true. I'm glad you said that. But Scribner <laughs> has a long and distinguished literary tradition and um, they're a very good fit for you. So before mm. we end, um, what are you working on now? I always like to leave readers with the idea of it. There's a future book. Another one. So I am just about finished my third book. It's another gothic um, thriller set on an island, but this time it's set on the southeast coast of England. Um, it's in Essex near a place called Foulness Island. And it's an area that I, I know really, really well. It's close to where I lived for sort of 20 odd years. And it's a really eerie, eerie landscape. It's where, where the book is actually said is a, it's like a series of very low lying islands surrounded by um, creeks and really dangerous um, sandbanks and mud flats, tidal surges um, and active Ministry of Defence um, firing ranges. It's, it's a completely opposite sort of landscape to Scotland. It's very, very different. It's kind of like, um, you know, the Kent Marshes and Magwitch and Great Expectations. It's that kind of vibe or, or the women in black, you know, that kind of thing. But um, I don't want to jinx it too much by saying too much about it, but it's, it's a gothic um, mystery. It's about drug smuggling, murder, um, betrayal, adultery, a very dysfunctional community and um, just the lots of secrets kind of lurking under the surface waiting to to be exposed. I can see that this is the sort of story you like to read. I, I mean I like to read and therefore I like to write. Um, you know the south of England has such a long and fabled history of smuggling. Um, mm. you know, I've, I've spent time in Rye for example and um, you know that whole area and, and certainly during the Napoleonic Wars there was so much in the way of smuggling French goods and 
you yeah. know, back and forth of spies and the back and forth. Um, the Unknown Ajax is my favorite George at Hare book, maybe for that reason, that um, that, that sort of trade is going on. But um, yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful country there. Our last, our last actual cruise before the pandemic hit, we went from Lisbon up the coast and over to Amsterdam and then down the channel and all the way around Ireland to end up in Dublin. But the, wow. the thing I loved the most were the Sillies, which I had never been I to. I have never been. Oh, never been. the gardens at Trevisco are absolutely astonishing. And yeah. uh, there's a little castle there. There's a little garrison there. And what interested me was that there were many tourists there from Cornwall and there's just a little plane. <laughs> I mean, it's a little baby plane. And it's yeah. back and forth, you know, from Cornwall to... Um, I think it's St. Mary is the, is yeah, the, the main one. But anyway, it was uh, just gorgeous. And, you know, I've often wondered why nobody really writes about the Sillies. There's a nice English mm -hmm. author called Hannah Dennison who has a kind of a cozy, totally different than, than the sort of book she wrote um, that's taking place there. But otherwise, I can't recall any crime fiction that, um, so there's another Island, I'm giving it to you. There's another another island for you, but you might have to go some to introduce the Gothic elements. But why not? Yeah. You know, it does. And there's a, a lovely author called Will Thomas who writes for Minotaur. And I'm trying to remember, but there is an island. What is the other islands just off the west coast of England? Not the Sillies. Um, there's. There's the Isle of Man, but that's no, a bit further that's north. too high up. It's further down south. I do. There's a, an author called Alan Bradley who sure. wrote a, a huge hit called "The Sweetness in the Bottom of the Pie." He's Canadian, huh? and um, and he is now living on the Isle of Man. And I keep thinking that I will go visit him. Now, there's it's <laughs> I can't think of them, but anyway, they're higher up than the Sillies, but not that far. Anyway, Will wrote a real. Agatha Christie kind of, you know, because it lends itself to a more traditional or classical country yes. house murder setting where instead of the supernatural, you just have, you know, really bad mm. people doing really bad things. <laughs> bad they're, things. Doing it, they're doing it on the island where they And keep, they're trapped, you know, they can't yeah. escape each other, they can't escape the island. That's it's, right. It's and, definitely. you know, islands, I mean, it's amazing to me how many people in the last few years anyway have adopted the whole, and then there were none, you know, the whole mm. as, a, as a way of structuring a, a close setting mystery. But most of them pretend that there is a Gothic element in it, but it really turns out, you know, not to be but Gothic. It's not. It turns out to be <laughs> just really bad it's nasty people. You know? yeah. so, so I think it's, you know, I think it's fun that, um, that you, you know, you do the sort of supernatural version of the Agatha Christie more you know yeah. version and how lucky we are that there are all these islands out there <laughs> i know <laughs> that we can use so jacob um you could come back if you can speak and if you don't have any sound i'll just sign us off here in theory if jacob is someone watching there might be a few <laughs> questions but i'm not sure it was unfair to ask him to do the tech for this so he may have just disappeared <laughs> jacob are you there there he is there can we hear you no sound. All right. Well, um, in that case, I guess we're not going to be able to take any reader questions. I'm sorry about that, Carol. But I hope those of you who are watching, or probably more of you, will be watching it later because this is so early in the day here in the in the U.S. Um, we'll have enjoyed our conversation. Um, there will be a podcast, and um, Mirrorland, which is Carol's first book, is just out in paperback. Oh, I've got, yeah. No, I've got. I don't actually have. Um, actually, it's not out yet. It's coming out towards the end of January uh, from Scribner um, as a paperback. So if you missed it, you can you can. I think it's out now. It's out already. Is it okay? It is. I, I ordered it today, but I'm, I, sometimes the pub dates, publication dates, keep shifting in the U.S. Uh, because of a paper. So I thought I saw that it was later, but maybe it's already here. Anyway, uh, Mirrorland is completely different than the Black House. There's no reason to read them in sequence at all. You can read the Black yeah. House and then read Mirrorland because they're not connected. And clearly from what Carol has to say about her third book, it will be 
another totally different, you know. But what fun! We can we can go all the way around Scotland, yes. <laughs> British Isles, island after island. <laughs> Maybe you can finally That's get to true. Scotland. And now that he includes the stop writing, you yeah. Know, well, you know, I'm actually going there in June to to something called Shetland Noir, which is a a, a book festival. So yes, I'm, I'm going to be a guest at that. Yeah. Oh, how wonderful! Because I know yeah. there's Iceland Noir and there's Blood yes. Scotland, yes. but Shetland Noir. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and Anne Cleves is actually the, the sort of person who's running the running the show. Well, how wonderful! I love yeah. it that all these small noir conventions are cropping up. Yeah. Uh, do you yeah. know who else is going? Um, I think I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think Val McDermott is okay. going to be there, and um, Ellie Griffiths, and um, there was somebody else, but I've forgotten who. But I think they, they're, they've just started announcing them, this special guest. What, what is the date? I think it's the 15th to the 18th of June, something like that. Oh, it's in June. Oh, yes. okay. Well, Ellie's one of my favorite people. And I Ellie's lovely. Ellie's very well. So, wow, maybe I can figure out some way to actually attend. I would love to do oh, that. Oh, it'd be it's lovely. So yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll look yeah. into it. Iceland has that noir. It meets in Reykjavik on the, I think it's the third weekend in November. Mm. Um, and Bloody Scotland is in September. Yes. So there is a kind of general fiesta kind of a yes. thing going on for <laughs> all those times. Right. Well, anyway, Carol, it's lovely to see you again. So thank you very much for spending time with us. And this is publication day in the United States for the Black House. So I only have tea because it's so damn early, but <laughs> I have water. <laughs> right. A toast to your book. And I hope one you. day you'll be able to come to Scottsdale. I recommend you try winter because the summer will wipe you out. It's so hot. Oh. Maybe next, <laughs> maybe next time in January, maybe you can figure out a way to have a little. I would love to do that. I really good? genuinely would love to do that. Yeah. yeah. It would be wonderful. We'll talk to you. <laughs> really school. would. We can work out. All right. Well, thank you so much. And felicitations yeah. on publishing The Black House. Bye. Thank you, Barbara. Thank My you. My pleasure. Bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.